Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Hot Rod Bob, and you've got gas. The Morning Edition. And we're part of Two Tired Guys Productions. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Hey, we have got a great topic. Now, a lot of people talk about what you thought your worst car was. But one of the cars that makes the top 10 every time is the Pinto. And why? Well, they had this little problem igniting. Well, blowing up. Catching fire. But that was really one of the only issues with the Pinto. Now, as far as the reliability of the Pinto, the Pinto was a pretty reliable car. For the time, it wasn't a bad-looking car. It rode a little rough, but it was a compact car. They all did that. It had plenty of room inside for the size of the car. It was affordable, but it was reliable as far as a daily mode of transportation provided you get everyone off your back bumper. But it always makes the top worst list because of its propensity to explode. But we're going to talk about some of the other cars that are on the considered worst list of cars based on the Brain Trust at Edmunds.com. Now, Edmunds is an automotive authority, but they have a lot of different writers that produce documents for them. Well, I took a look at what they call their 50 worst cars. We're not going to hit all 50, but we're going to talk about some of them. Now, the number 50 car on their list is the 1978 Dodge Challenger. Now, for those of you that remember, the Challenger at that point in time was a joint venture between Jenner Chrysler and Mitsubishi. It was actually a Mitsubishi Gallant that was rebadged as the Challenger. The typical American V8-powered Challenger was gone. They had ended it. It wasn't selling as well as they wanted. It cost too much to produce. So Chrysler, with their agreements with Mitsubishi, rebadged their Gallant. Now, it wasn't a bad-looking car. It's actually kind of neat-looking for its time. It fit the need at the time for a compact sport coupe. It was relatively stylish. It was outfitted pretty well. It was anemic as hell, which was why they think it was a bad car. In the base engine, a 2-liter, it was a, a mere 77 horsepower. In 2.6-liter form, it was 105. But that 2.6-liter engine was pretty peppy for the time and for the classification of the car. So, really, it wasn't all that bad. Now, Ford, on the other hand, decided to go to Kia for their next compact car, and they called it the Ford Aspire. Now, it was ignored by pretty much everyone. It was a bad car, period. First off, it was a Kia. Now, Kia, as you may know, is part of the Hyundai group. Yes, I know they're sold here in the U.S. as a separate brand, but they are part of Hyundai. Hyundai and Kia, same basic company, different products. They don't share much of anything, but it's kind of like General Motors. You've got Chevrolet, and you've got Cadillac, and you've got Merrick, and they're different companies within the organization. But the Aspire, with a 1.3-liter engine, couldn't get out of its own way if it had to. And, uh, oh well, it's gone. Smart for Ford. Now, Edmunds doesn't like the 1989 Ford Thunderbird. Too big, too heavy, too slow. V6 power, couldn't get it out of its own way. It basically killed the Thunderbird as we knew it. 
Now, here's a car where the British, and I love British cars, mind you, but the British took a reliable Japanese vehicle, rebodied it a little bit, but made it unreliable. The Sterling 825. Now, I like the styling of the car. Very sharp, angular body. Had the Acura Legend V6 power. But it tended to rust before your very eyes. The electrical system was, well, if it lasted a couple of weeks, you were doing good. It became a very unreliable car. Good looking. And it was a great planter in your driveway, but I agree with them. Not too good. In 1957, Renault was in the country selling their Dauphine. Now, it was a good-looking little car. It really was for the time. And a four-door sedan. You could fit four people uncomfortably. And it had a 32-horsepower, four-cylinder engine in the rear. And it was a direct competitor for the Volkswagen Beetle. But in a drag race, well, you're... Cl egg timer wasn't good enough for the Dolphin because it went 22 seconds to reach 60 miles an hour, which is pretty close to its top speed anyway. In 1983, Plymouth came out with what they called the Caravelle, a stretched K car. Now, the K cars were pretty decent cars at the time and pretty much saved the Chrysler Corporation. But the stretched K car, well, it kind of stretched your imagination and really didn't go over well. In 1982, Camaro came out with a new model. They called it the Camaro Sport Coupe, and this was a low entry-level vehicle. It was powered by the Iron Duke four-cylinder, all of 90 horsepower. It was noisy, it was unresponsive, and in the weight of a Camaro, it barely moved. So if you see a Camaro with a four-cylinder, run. The rest of the car is pretty good, but the four-cylinder engine wasn't up to snuff. Now, the basics of the Iron Duke engine started out with the Chevy 2 back in 1962, and the horsepower really didn't increase over the years. They did change cylinder head configurations. It did meet emissions now, and it was a pretty reliable engine itself. But when you put it in an over 3,000-pound car... Well, remember the Dolphin we just talked about? Couldn't get out of its own way. Now, Edmunds.com doesn't like the Chevrolet SSR, which was a kind of stylized retro pickup truck, and for good reason. Although it looked pretty good, and I had one for a, a company vehicle for a, a couple of days one time, which was enough, it's claustrophobic with the top up. When you put the top down, you couldn't use the pickup bed. The pickup bed wasn't open. It had a cover that opened up but you couldn't really use anything because there wasn't enough room with all the, everything else in there. It sat on a trailblazer chassis, which in itself was okay, but the car, or the truck, or the whatever it was, came in at a very heavy weight. At best, I got 16 miles per gallon on the highway, and acceleration was a little lacking because this was a 7,000-pound vehicle, and it wasn't a good utility vehicle. Cool-looking? Would I drive one again? Yeah, kind of, if I could afford to feed it. In 1974, Ford came out with the Gran Torino Elite. This is a luxury version of the Ford and Mercury Cougar body sheet metal, and it was squared off. It was... forget it. Stay away from it.
the Torino was a re reasonably good car, but yeah. Now, one of the most unreliable cars out there was the beautiful Maserati Bi-Turbo. And boy, was it bad. And Sanford is saying that Dauphine made Renault the best-selling debut for an import brand, a record that stood for nearly three decades. And it is a good-looking car, Sam. I owned one. I really liked the car. It drove well. It handled well. It was comfortable for the time. But where Edmonds gets into the whole thing is it wasn't a very fast car. It never was made to be unless you got the Gordini. And then if you got a Renault Dauphine Gordini, you had yourself a spirited little rear-engine car that was cool and they are neat. Now, we had a guy come out to the cruise night about a month ago with one of these Gordinis. He had modified it a little bit more with flared fenders, bigger wheels and tires. And I don't remember what he had for an engine, but it wasn't the Renault engine. It was cool looking. I still like that car. Yeah, SSR weighed in at almost 7,000 pounds, Sam. It was a heavyweight. The hydraulic systems they used for the canopy and the roof were just tremendously heavy. And the vehicle just did not perform. The 5.3-liter engine is what it came with at first. The next year, they put the 6-liter in. That did help because it had more torque. But still, the fuel economy was not there at all. And, yeah, Sam, I do like the, the Dolphine. Would I buy another one? <laughs> Maybe. But it, it was a good-looking car. It just... For the U.S. market, it really wasn't the right car for the driving conditions we ended up having. Now, in 1957, we didn't have the freeway systems we have today, and it was an okay around-town car. It really was. It wasn't all that unreliable. Heck, Renault was the one that pro provided the engines for some of the Lotuses that came out early on, the uh, Lotus uh, the little one, rear-engine, mid-engine car. Europa. No. Yeah. So... Renault did provide a pretty decent engine. The Dolphine was a good-looking car by its by its time, and I liked it as that as far as that goes. But based on performance, it wasn't an American car, a good enough car for the American market, other than a little grocery getter car. And really, that's what it was designed to be. 1976 Chevrolet Chevette, or Chevette. Now. Edmonds has some information here that's not quite right. They're saying it was designed off an Opel. Well, it was designed off a European, well, Vauxhall and Opel, but it was based on the Isuzu iMark. Same chassis as the iMark, same engine as the iMark. For some reason, they don't have any problem with the Isuzu, but they didn't like the Chevette. Now, I drove a Chevette. As a matter of fact, a group of us got together one time, rented Chevettes, and took them out to an autocross. And we had our own little IROC series with these Chevettes to see who would do better in the class. Surprisingly, we were the top three cars in the class the Chevette ran in, believe it or else. Of the three of us, I won by a mere tenth of a second. But they were decent handling cars, even with the stock skinny tires. They were good performers for their size and time. They did get excellent fuel mileage. As far as reliability, there were some quirks to the car, just like every car's got, but they were not all that dramatic and easily fixed. 
Now, Edmonds seems to dislike the 1955 Dodge LaFemme series. Why? It wasn't unreliable. It was targeted for a female market. It did well. All right, it was discontinued after the 1956 model year, but so were a lot of vehicles that came out as a specialty. And you got to remember, if you don't know what the LaFemme was, it was a pink and white vehicle, and it was targeted towards female homemakers. It was a neat-looking car for the time. I had a neighbor that had one. But Chrysler at the time came up with a number of vehicles with pastel colors on them, geared toward the female market, because in the early 1950s, the mid-1950s, more and more families became two-car families. When they, you know, a lot of them didn't even have one, but most companies had, or most families had one car. In the late 1950s, that is when the two-car families started, and Chrysler tried to take advantage of that with a series of vehicles aimed at the female buyers or drivers. Now, Edmonds doesn't like the Saab 9.7. Well, it was built in Ohio and gussied up Chevy Trailblazer. It was an SUV. And that was in the era of General Motors taking all their captured imports and giving them an SUV based on the Trailblazer platform. Saab got it. Isuzu got it. And all their other brands got the same vehicle. Now, the reason it didn't go over well was, well, the Saab was the most expensive of them, but a tornado hit the General Motors plant in Oklahoma where these vehicles were built. It knocked out the paint booths. Two million dollars worth of repairs would have been necessary. General Motors said, mm, pass, and they shut down the plant, effectively eliminating the Isuzu SUV whole division because there were no more SUVs. They were not bringing in anything from Japan for Isuzu. They, Saab did not have an SUV in Europe to bring in. And you know, GMC and Chevrolet had their other models. It wasn't a big loss for them. So the Saab 9.7 went away. Was it a bad vehicle? Not at all. It was no less reliable than its equivalent Chevrolet. <clears throat> it had a little bit more Saab styling, which was kind of neat. Now, in 1968, Volkswagen came up with the 411 and 412 series. It was a large Volkswagen. It was as they tried to get into a different market and go after different buyers. It worked. It wasn't too bad, but it didn't last very long. And Volkswagen saw the writing on the wall and started investigating and then producing front-wheel drive, front-engine, water-cooled cars because the air-cooled cars were no longer able to meet emissions shortly after that. Couldn't put a catalytic converter on them. There wasn't enough room on the Beetle. So Volkswagen started to change their whole design concepts and so forth. Edmonds doesn't like the 1979 Mercedes-Benz 300 diesels. Why? Well, because it only made 110 horsepower. You're not buying a Mercedes diesel for a speed vehicle. In 2006, Dodge came out with a Caliber SRT4. Caliber SRT4. Hmm. Yeah, wasn't too bad. A little bit of a SUV-style vehicle. It replaced the Neon, but it was big, and it wasn't the most stylish vehicle. 
1975, Bristol, a British company, came out with a hideous gentleman's express, they said. The Zagato-built body on an ancient Bristol chassis with a Chrysler 383 big block. Hmm, that could be interesting. 1978, Chevrolet C&K diesels. Well, the C&K are the trucks. Four-wheel drive and two-wheel drive. They came out with a GM-produced Oldsmobile diesel. And, well, it only put out 125 horsepower. And the engine was known to be a grenade. Yes, didn't last very long. 1923. These guys at Edmonds are really reaching. Series M Chevrolet. Chevrolet experimented with their first air-cooled engines. Individual cylinders fitted with copper fins. Only 500 were built, and virtually they're saying all were recalled. 1923? Vehicle recalls? Where's Edmonds getting this stuff? 1970, Triumph came out with a sports car they called the Stag. Now, it was kind of a strange-looking car, even for them. It had a 3-liter single-overhead-cam V8 engine and typical Lucas Electrics. And therein lied a lot of the problem. So it really didn't go over that well. It was an expensive car for Triumph, and it didn't last that long. The Crosley Hot Shot. These guys at Edmonds are reaching for it. Now, Crosley, if you are aware of their car manufacturing made small, little, tiny cars, and the engines were based on an engine they developed for World War II generator sets. Now, the original engine was made, the cylinders were made out of sheet metal. Yeah, not cast. It was a sheet metal block with a cast aluminum overhead cam or cast iron overhead cam system. It was a very reliable engine once it ran. The problem was it was water-cooled, and when you used sheet metal, for cylinders, guess what happens? No antifreeze? No rust inhibitor? Yeah, they rusted away. Now, production cars ended up with a cast block that was far more reliable, and Crosley uh, produced cars through the late 1940s and maybe into the 1950s. I have to check. Sam, you could probably check on this one. But the Crosley hotshot was Crosley's attempt to make a sports car. Now, it wasn't a very good car. It wasn't a very bad car. With a 750cc engine, uh, well, they're still saying that in 1950, the block was welded together from various pieces. Um, I don't remember. At that point, I think it was all pretty much a cast iron or cast block, and it was pretty good. But performance-wise, if you missed a shift, the pedestrians passed you in the crosswalk. But they were cool little sports cars, and it was just something Crosley did. Crosley was better known for their radios, though, and they stayed in business making those. 1971 Plymouth Cricket. Now, this was a compact car to compete against the Pinto and the Vega, and it was a British-made vehicle based on the Hillman Avenger. It was okay. It just really didn't do well in the States. It wasn't very good-looking. The 1954 Nash Metropolitan. Now, they're saying this was one of the worst designs of 1950s, but you know what? It was cool, and it's got a great following today. It was based on the British powertrain out of the MGs and the Austins, and it wasn't all that bad. Rebecca Cisneros says, Crosleys are super cool, and her mom had a cricket, and she loved it. 
They were not all that bad. They just did not have the right marketing, and they didn't hit the mark here in the, in the U.S. 1977, Lincoln came out with the Versailles. That was to go up against the Cadillac Seville. Lincoln and Mercury took a Monarch and Continental and put a bump on the trunk that looked like a spare tire, and that was about it. It was still a Granada. It was still a Mercury Monarch. It may have had a little bit more sound deadening. It was heavier, so it was even slower. 1976, Dodge Aspen Plymouth Volari. This wasn't a bad car. I don't know why it made their worst list, unless this guy that's writing this list just didn't have it in for, or didn't like cars that weren't made for his designs. 2007, Malibu Max SS. It was kind of a station wagon, but less utility and a low point for the Chevy SS badging, and I can kind of agree with that. 1990 Infiniti M30 Convertible. Spongy suspension, lackluster drivetrain, and a soggy structure. Really? It had the same powertrain as the 300ZX. It sat on the same chassis as the Maxima. As a matter of fact, which they called it a Bluebird in Japan, it was a Maxima, but a convertible. It was based on the two-door coupe, and it wasn't a bad car. But Infiniti was going through growing pains. They had just come into the country as the high-line version from Nissan, and they were constantly changing product. 1996 Ford Taurus. Yeah, Taurus was a good-selling car for Ford. They weren't unreliable. 87 Cadillac Elante. Now, this was a strange car. They were designed by Pinaferina. The bodies were shipped to the U.S. for assembly. They were a front-wheel drive two-seater, and that may have been what killed them, plus the fact they were extremely expensive for the time. Fiat Strada. I don't know. That was a bad car. A front-wheel drive compact, and Fiat bowed out of the U.S. market for 28 years. Now, I've said that many times, that Fiat left this country in disgrace, and we gave them Chrysler to fix them. But Fiat didn't leave because of the Strata or the Ritmo front-wheel drive compact car. They left because of years of unreliable vehicles that rusted away in your driveway overnight. And they had had many recalls because of rust and reliability. They earned the name Fix It Again Tony because of their reliability. Now, the U.S. government, in their infinite wisdom, when they restructured Chrysler Corporation, decided Fiat was going to fix them. Right. 75 AMC Pacer. Not an unreliable car. Not necessarily the best-looking car. But they have a cult following today. So, worse cars? No. Unusual car? Yeah. Now they're saying the 2011 Aston Martin was a restyled Toyota Scion. Really? Never came into the U.S. Not familiar with the car. The 1982 Renault Fuego. This was sold through Chrysler dealers at the time because Chrysler had had an agreement with Renault, like the Le Car, which was the Renault R5, and others. Uh, the Fuego was kind of an interesting-looking vehicle. It was quirky in design and style, and for the U.S. market, it was a little on the expensive side and too quirky. And that was its problem. Now, for some reason, here we come in. They're bringing up the Pinto again. It was lacklux. It lacked protection for the rear-mounted fuel tank. Ford 
ended up paying out a lot of money for disasters. But they're saying it was a low-speed accident, and that's not true. There were not low-speed accidents. In low speed, the Pinto did fine. It was in higher speeds, rear-ended, when the Pintos were stationary and the vehicle hit them from behind, that they had the problem. They fixed it with a simple shield over the bolts that when held the bumper. What would happen is the cars would get hit from behind, the bumper bolts would pierce the fuel tank, the fuel would come out and get on the exhaust system. Was that different from any other Ford product at the time? Mustang, Maverick, all used the same configuration for fuel tanks. They didn't have the problem. What was it about the Pinto? Don't know. 1974 Reliant Robin. Again, another car that we didn't get in the U.S., but it was a three-wheeler that you could tip over very easily, especially if you watch Top Gear and watch Jeremy Clarkson do that. 1983 Renault Alliance. This was an AMC-built, Americanized version of a front-wheel drive Renault, and again, this was during the period of, of Chrysler's involvement with Renault. Not a very good-looking car. Not a very reliable car, too. All right, these guys are reaching. 1917 Chevrolet D-Series. Now, for those of you who may not know, Chevrolet's first V8 engine was not 1955. It was 1917. Now, it only got 36 horsepower, but Chevrolet was be had just become part of General Motors, and General Motors saw the Chevrolet as an economy car to compete against Ford not a V8-powered car to compete against Packard and Pontiac and others that were larger. So General Motors killed the V8 engine, not because of unreliability, but because of their target market. 1979 Olds Cutlass Supreme Diesel. Well, we know the problem with the diesel, and that was the problem with the Olds Cutlass. The 1957 Trabant, again, a car that never came into the U.S., so eh, we'll skip over that. Good morning, Rosianna. Rosanna Hernandez from Utah watching. Larry Oriel calling in or watching us from Arizona. I'm hoping to see you at the Nitro Revival in November. At this point, it's still on the calendar. Now, the Cadillac Cimarron. Now, this was a Chevrolet Cavalier dressed up to look like a Cadillac. Unreliable? As unreliable as the Chevrolet was. It had a lot more stuff on it. It was a little bit heavier. It was a little bit quieter. Was it a real Cadillac? No. And that was the problem. 58 Edsel Corsair. It's an Edsel. What can you say? 2000 Saturn Ion. Well, it was a low-dollar car. It was a Saturn. It was no more unreliable than the regular Saturn. 71 Chevrolet Vega. An engine that couldn't hold oil. A car built with contempt for its buyers, they're saying. Well, you know what? I had one of those 71 Vegas. I had a rebuilt engine in it from General Motors. And I went 80,000 miles before it started burning oil. And one of the things we found was the umbrellas or the seals on the valve stems. We changed the V8 umbrella seals when I did a, some engine work to it. Not, not because it needed it. I ported, and I ported the intake and the exhaust. We port matched it went to a little bit higher lift cam and some other things. And when we did this, we put in the umbrella seals from the V8 and no oil issues. The cylinders held compression. That was not an issue. Although 
If you did not change the oil on a regular basis, you had a problem. Now, at the time, I was an auto shop teacher. Once a month, I taught kids how to do an oil change, and it was my car. So we used a high-grade Castrol, uh, not a synthetic at the time, but Castrol uh, GTX. And like I said, 80,000 miles, the only thing that killed the engine, uh, I road raced the car. I was in a big sweeping turn at about 70 miles an hour in third gear, pedaled to the metal, and the oil cavitated. I spun the bearings. Didn't use any oil, though. BMW Isetta. Now, if those of you who don't know what the Isetta is, that was a car with one door. It was the front of the car. The door was actually from a manufacturer that made refrigerators. BMW modified it. The car was powered by a little single-cylinder motorcycle-style motor. wasn't interchangeable with the BMW motorcycles, though. And depending on what country you were in, it was either a four-wheel or a three-wheel vehicle. And the three-wheel vehicle version was able to be registered as a motorcycle. So they're saying it was a bad car. You know what? It was one of the cars that helped save BMW back in the 50s after World War II. They had the 700, which was a little sedan, and they had the Isetta. And those two cars saved BMW. So, hey, I wouldn't complain about that. I wouldn't put it in a worse list. The Yugo. Now, that was in the worst list, and I agree with that one. The Yugoslavians took the Fiat 127 and were able to make it even more unreliable than Fiat's own version. It wasn't a bad-looking car. It was a small car. It was a throwaway car. But was it a bad car? Yeah, it was. Who brought them in? Malcolm Bricklin. Yes, the man who brought you the Bricklin, whose car is also on this list someplace. The Mustang II. Now, they're saying it's a bad car. You know what? It is the car, if you read history, that saved the Mustang name. It saved the Mustang. It sold amazingly well. It was reliable. It had the four-cylinder engine as the base engine. It also got a V6 and a V8 option later on. There was the Mustang Cobra II, which was the small, again, Mustang II, with the Cobra option. They were kind of neat. Raphael, how are you doing in Italy? Well, I'm doing fine. Hope you are too. So the Mustang II, I would not have ever put this on an, on a worst car list because it was a car that saved the Mustang name. The next Mustang that came out was in 1979. And hey, guys, that Mustang skyrocketed. But it was saved by the Mustang II. And read your history on that. That's what it is. Now, this one is the number one worst car, according to Edmonds. And reliability-wise, I don't agree. But when you look at the car, yeah, it was one of the worst cars General Motors came out with, styling-wise. It was the, 2000, excuse me, the 2001 Pontiac Aztec. We refer to them as a stagecoach because that's kind of what it looked like without the horses. So the Pontiac Aztec, and I remember marketing telling engineering and everyone else that they were going to sell 100,000 plus of these cars. And I can remember, or the sales division did, the marketing guys, after doing their research, said, mm, yeah, if you can sell 20,000, you'll be doing good. 
Well, they went to production on these things based on a sales volume of 100,000 units a year, and they were able to sell 20,000 units a year. So General Motors lost their tail on this. Now, what they also did was they used this basic concept of the chassis design for the Buick Rendezvous. And it stayed in production for quite a few years. It wasn't an unreliable vehicle. It just wasn't a very good-looking vehicle in either case. The Buick was more rounded. The Pontiac was more uh, angular. Was it a bad car? Mechanically, no. Styling-wise, oh yeah, and no one went to it. Well, these are some of the worst cars that Edmunds.com has told us about. And as you can tell, I don't agree with them on everything. But, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> neither would you. Hey, you have a great day. This is Hot Rod Bob. A little bit of a cough here. You have a great day. I'm Hot Rod Bob. <coughs> and you've got gas. The morning edition. I don't have gas right now. I just got a little stuff in the throat. Brought to you by Service Tech Equipment. Thanks for tuning in to Gas, your morning edition. We made the top 100 in the U.S. for podcasts. Have a great day. Take care now.